And we pray that, Lord, as we receive from your Spirit the engrafted Word, Lord, that which is poured into us, we bless you, God. We thank you that you haven't left us widows and orphans. Lord, that you sent your Spirit to speak. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would fall upon us as your people. Speak now these words of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your seats. This morning, we are about to embark on a journey in a new book. A couple of them, actually, which will take a while. If you turn to 1 Corinthians, I'm going to take a journey through the letters to the church at Corinth. And this morning, just a simple introduction to them. As we begin... I want to remind you that the wise King Solomon, as he penned the book of Ecclesiastes, there in the very first chapter of Ecclesiastes, in verse 9, it says, That which has been will be. That which is done is that which will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. That verse is just as true today as it was then. And as we now turn our attention to these two marvelous letters to the church at Corinth, they look a whole lot like the headlines of our day and time. And in fact, you could kind of close your eyes and change a few names, and you would highly likely be able to interject most any modern city on earth, and you would find these same issues. And so these two letters, very instructive, marvelously helpful in dealing with issues, uh, very, very poignant at times, look a whole lot like our headlines in our news. You're going to see sex and drugs and lawsuits and divorce and financial problems and you know all kinds of crazy things in these two letters. But they really are probably as important today as when they were written to the church at Corinth. The difference is, is they're affecting these issues more people than ever. Paul's church letters here are tragically nothing new. And in fact, the leaders of the church today can often be found embroiled in scandal and slander, in sexual sin in monetary debauchery. And in fact, the blatant heresies that affected the church at Corinth are still around and very much alive today. And so the problems that we'll see are problems that we need to have answers for today. And perhaps not a single person in this room is engaged in any of these things. But I guarantee you, you know people who are. I can absolutely tell you that you have people that you know very closely whose marriages are in trouble, whose financial lives are a mess, who are engaged in things that they shouldn't be engaged in. And so we need to have the answers. As a church, we need to be prepared for the world that we live in. One of the things I find troubling at times is the church 
at times seems to be nothing more than a Christian social club, almost having little effect on the world that we live in. Oh, we ourselves bear the truths, but we don't share the truths. We ourselves know the answer, but we don't share the answer. We have an opinion based on what Scripture says, but we don't push forth that opinion into our world. And to some degree, as I've shared with you before, I think many of the problems that we face in our country today are a direct result from the church being asleep at the wheel. We have forgotten that we are supposed to be leaders and that we are supposed to be different than the world. And so these two letters will draw us into a time that looks remarkably like our own. This morning I want you to turn, if you would, first to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And I want to set the stage for you, because these are letters that were drafted to a church that we know quite a little bit about from the book of Acts. And though we'll not read all of it concisely, to set the stage for it, in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says, And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. If you look on a map, Corinth and Ephesus are on opposite sides of the Aegean Sea, roughly adjacent to one another. And Paul spends significant time in both of these two cities. It is from Ephesus that he writes a majority of his letters, and from Corinth he writes most of the rest of them, including the letter to the Roman church. And so very important in the writings of Paul is the fact that he has been transplanted into one of the most debauched cities on the face of the earth at the time. It gave him tremendous insight into the things that ail us. Ailed the world then, certainly are problematic today. Verse 2, he goes on, and we'll read a significant chunk of this chapter now. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born to Pontius, who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla, and become Claudius, and had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. And so, because he was of the same trade, in other words, they were tent makers, he stayed with them and worked for them by occupation because they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him, And blasphemed, he shook his garments at them and said, Your blood be upon your heads, for I am clean. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. And so this is the the inference that we get that though Paul, being a Jew, was really called to minister to the Gentile people. And you're going to find a little bit of of an encouragement to you. I don't know about all of you, but I know for me, the people that are toughest for me to minister to are the ones I am closest to. It is very often much easier for someone to minister to your own family members than it is for you to minister to your own family members. And so Paul gives us a little bit of insight here. Uh, Because he's a Jew, I, I have often wondered, maybe he was just simply a bit too dogmatic. Maybe he understood their argument so well 
that it felt like maybe those people never gained any ground, and maybe they simply gave up and just uh, stopped listening to Paul. So don't be surprised when you have little effect in those that are closest to you. It seems to be often the case throughout Scripture and was certainly the case in the life of Paul. If ever there was a man you would think would have been equipped to minister to the Jews, it would be Paul the Pharisee, amen? He was classically trained. He was a Hebrew scholar. He would think, yeah, send him to the Jews. But he had, he had very little effect. And so he sent to the Gentiles. And he departed there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I kind of find that interesting. Paul's sitting there. He's listening to everything that's going on. He can no doubt hear what's happening, but he's really not having a lot of effect. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord and all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. It says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so Paul, encouraged by the Lord, stay in this yucky city. Hang out there. Matter of fact, he's there for a year and six months. And as far as Scripture speaks, this is the longest period of time that Paul spends anywhere at once. So he was there for a while. He got a really good picture of life in Corinth. He understood it well, and the whole time, though he was being combated constantly, he was preaching the Word of God to people who did not want to hear the truth. Amen? You ever feel like that? Like, ah, this is falling on deaf ears, God. We all drag out, oh, it's pearl before swines, pearl before swines. I'm not going to throw my pearl to swines. You know what? You need to toss some more pearls and worry less about what swine they are. So I think sometimes we use that as an excuse. It would have been really easy for Paul to just say, this is just the same my kind of city. I'm out of here. But the Lord himself encourages him to stick it out. Now, the city of Corinth was a Grecian city. It sits on an isthmus, and basically it was about 48 miles, 50 miles from Athens or so. So it was a very important trade city. And because it was an important trade city, uh, and, and the fact that it actually had been destroyed uh, by the Romans and then rebuilt by them, uh, it was a very new city. And so if you go to Ephesus or the city of Corinth now, there's still tremendous evidence of this period of time that exists there. You can go and visit these temples. They're still there. And so it, it is very, very important for us to understand the importance of these two letters. I believe that they're probably the most instructive in all of the New Testament with regard to the way the church should act, function, be, the standards we keep. It gives us tremendous answers to many of life's very deepest issues. And so Paul spent tremendous time in Corinth kind of figuring out what makes the world tick. And it's not all good. Amen? One of the things about the Super Bowl that I hate is it's, it's this love-hate thing. I like the commercials. As a general rule, you know, I watch the Super Bowl often for the commercials. It's just like, that's really, that's, that's funny. 
like the cat wrangler one from a few years ago. The guy comes out with his face all. You know, this was the type of world that Paul was living in. It was cutting edge. They didn't have internet, but they sure had just about every other type of attraction that the human mind could gravitate towards at that time. And so here he is, he he finds himself there uh, with this problematic church. And one of the difficulties when the church begins to grow and expand is not everybody's on the same page, amen? The church is comprised of new believers and you know, younger believers and old believers and then kind of stale believers and not so much doing anything anymore believers. It's, it's a very diverse group of people. Not everyone is in the same place spiritually. And so when you begin to look at a church in a cosmopolitan city uh, like Corinth, you're bound to have about every problem known to man that it would have existed at that point in time. And that was certainly true in this particular church. They had rampant immorality. Uh, there were confusions about the resurrection. You might say they were arguing about the rapture as well. Uh, there were all kinds of evils that were actually invading the church itself to the point that the church was, oftentimes even their worship services were affected. And so uh, this particular book is one that we can look at and we go, wow, that's still going on today. Uh, it was a very, very diverse cultural city. Now, we happen to live here in the mountains, and, and let's just say we, we're not all that culturally diverse, okay? We're, we're kind of the opposite of the Church of Corinth. I don't know why that is. Probably because most people uh, have more sense than to live in a place where it's supposed to be snowing half the year, uh, which I believe on Tuesday it is going to snow again. I... I I'm not sure, though. I'm not prophesying, okay? (laughs) But whenever you have a tremendously cosmopolitan city, you also have all the problems that go along with it. You have different cultural views on the world. You have different racial views on the world. You have different problems that exist within those different racial groups and with those different religious groups. And when they get together, they're kind of hard to get to see a common position. And that was the church at Corinth. It was just this group of people. It was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And part of those Jews were very staunch Jews. And so they began to do what we would call Judaizing within the church. They said, well, this Jesus thing is great, and we realize that there's a new covenant, but let's keep the law too. So you had that group. And then you had the other group, so you had the legalists, if you will. And then you had those who were of the libertine bent. Which of the ones is, man, God's grace, praise God, and I'm going to go out and have a few beers. So you had both groups. You have the legalists and you have the libertine, all in the same church. And they're competing with each other. It's like, oh, you guys are all, you know, you're, I can't even believe you would think that. No, you just go ahead and keep the law. I don't care. I'm going to go over here and, you know, I like the temple of Apollos and Aphrodite and Diana. I'm, I'm kind of liking this whole grace thing because I can go do whatever I want to do and still be okay with God. And neither is the right view. And so Paul ends up able to address both of these. There's a couple of reasons for these letters. And they're really basically twofold. One is to provide a suitable remedy for the problems, and the other is to give an answer for future generations. In other words, he was trying to solve something that exists right here and right now and also present a truth that would be good for later. Guess which one of those two things we're really interested in? It's a truth for later. 
because these same problems exist. And they have always existed. For 2,000 years, they've never changed. And so it's interesting to me, and I actually love this about these two letters, and it's often missed. Paul speaks with tremendous gentleness and mildness in these two letters for the things that are going on. Can I tell you that is the secret to dealing with sin of any flavor? Because most people can just get righteously indignant. Amen? I don't know about I have no problem getting righteously indignant. I can form an opinion and get my case together and I can all right, all right, right here. See, this is what you're doing. But can you do it in a way that it's received? Can you do it in such a way that that person realizes that God's grace is available, that, the, the, that what God wants is, is not to destroy them, but to change them? And Paul does that in these letters, and it's a very beautiful thing. And I think to some degree you have, you have two competing viewpoints. One is you just beat them with the baseball bat of Jesus, and the other is you just kind of ignore it and maybe it'll go away. And neither of those two views are correct. They're both wrong, and they're wrong for different reasons. On one hand, you drive people away from the grace of God. On the other hand, you make them think the grace of God has no standards whatsoever. You can just do whatever you want. Paul addresses that in these letters. He hits the middle ground. These two letters are that beautiful middle ground that we need to hit when we're dealing with issues in, in the church, in our own lives, in our own families. Interesting, according to Greek legend, uh, the king of Corinth was a, was a guy named Sisyphus. And what he was known to do was to take a very large round stone and he would roll it to the top of the hill at Corinth and it would roll back down. And he did this for all of his life because of his offense to the gods. And so it gave a picture of the futility of mankind's effort. And that was picked up on by the 20th century philosopher Albert Camus. And from that came a philosophy known as absurdism. And, and it's interesting that that comes from Corinth. Because a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, believe in absurdism. That life doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. That we're just accidents here on this earth. That we're... Uh, somehow the, the, the product of lightning striking a pool of goo some billions of years ago, and all of a sudden we're here and just whatever happens, happens. Uh, that was kind of how Corinth was. It was a city that was known, well, whatever, man, if it feels good, do it. If you like it, it must be good. If it's okay with you, then it's okay with me. Can't we all just get along? Let's coexist. Let's have no standards for anything. And if you like it, that's okay. And if I like it, that's okay. And nobody's ever wrong. It's kind of like I was reading an article on Friday. It blew me away. Do you realize that we have school districts in this country who will no longer give a zero or an F on any test? Because it makes kids feel bad about themselves. I kind of thought that was the whole point of a zero or an F. It's supposed to go, I'm not doing good. I probably should do better because I'm not doing good. But we've gotten to the place that we're just like the church at Corinth. Whatever. You know, don't make anybody feel bad about their sin. Don't address anything. Just leave them alone. It'll be okay. 
family of God, that will destroy the church. It will destroy the reputation. It will destroy the work of God. We have to have standards. And God lays them out very clearly in his word. And so these two letters will help us see some of those things. And, and it's really kind of a, the whole concept of the, of the letter to the church at Corinth, especially the first one, is kind of the good news, bad news thing. It's like you're children of grace, but you're kind of not acting like it. And that really is the story of a lot of our lives, amen? I think if we're honest with ourselves and, and we do some self-examination, which, by the way, you should do, you should take a look at the stock of your life and see what it's made out of. When you do that, it is kind of a good news, bad news thing. Man, I'm saved by, I, I'm praising God, I'm not the same person I used to be. But I'm also remembering I still have some issues. I still have some things that God's dealing with. And when you look at your life that way, you are not closed off to the hand of the Lord. But if you ever go to either extreme, and it doesn't matter which one, if you go to the extreme that it does not matter what you do, then you're in trouble. And if you go to the extreme that I need to do it myself, you're in trouble. You see, grace eliminates both of those positions. At least it should. It should bring you to the middle. To where it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift. And because it's a gift, it's available to everyone. But because you're a child of grace, you're no longer trying to do it all yourself. You also have a standard, which is holiness. It gives us this tremendous mental understanding and spiritual understanding that you know God really is at work doing it for us if we submit to his grace but by the same token if he's doing it for us it should change your life you act differently and so we find there when we get to chapter 6 and such were some of you after he lists this long list of sins and things that we can get involved in because let's face it every one of us is a has-been amen Every one of us is a has-been. It's what you used to be that you go, thank you, Jesus, I'm not that anymore. And for each of us, it could be a whole long litany of things. For some of us, it's a handful of things. For others, it's so many that if you were to really think about it, there's no way you should be saved. That's the marvel of grace. Grace saves the nearly righteous and the completely unrighteous all at the same time. Hallelujah. Because you know what? Probably in this room is, is a pretty widespread of those things when you talk about personal righteousness or standing before God. The things that you need to be saved from, if you will. I know for, for my life, there are some things I just don't struggle with. And there are some things that to this day, it's like, Lord, I can't even believe I thought that. Now, praise God, they're not active in my life anymore. And such were some of you. But those thoughts are still there. The propensity is still there. And each one of us needs grace no matter where you are on the spectrum, whether you're almost as good as God or whether you're nearly as rotten as Adolf Hitler. It doesn't matter. You still need grace. When we get to chapter 15... Paul says what I think is one of the most practically wonderful verses found in the New Testament. 
verse 33 and 34, it says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. And I'm reading from the NIV. Stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and this I say to your shame. You see, there's a practical practical part to holiness. Amen? That's why when somebody comes to me, well, you know, I, I used to have a problem with alcohol. And you ask them what they do. Well, well, I like to tailgate. Bad company corrupts good morals pretty much 100% of the time. And so Paul's going to say to them, guys, what are you doing? You got a problem in this area? You need to not go there. It's not that complex. You know, sometimes people, well, you know, I need my accountability buddy. You know, what you need to do is listen to what God says. Your accountability buddy may be helpful or beneficial at some point in time, but after a while, it better be you and Jesus, because that's the only time, only way you're going to have any success. Because I hate to tell you this, you can figure out a way to sin. Amen? You lock people in a cargo container, bury them out in the desert, they can still figure out a way to sin. It isn't about what you are next to, it's about what's inside of your head and inside of your heart. You can figure out a way to sin. I want to take a very quick look here at the first three verses. And it says and begins in verse 1 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For this letter is from Paul, and I'm reading from the New Living. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ from our brother Sosthenes. And so it says here very poignantly, it's a letter from Paul. He says, I'm writing this to you. He's writing it to the church. And it's in response to some of the questions that he was asked. It's in response to some of the problems. So this isn't one of those things that you look at it and go, you know, God just gave this obscure letter to somebody, got passed around to the church. This is a church that asked for help. This is a church that knew well that it had some issues that needed to be addressed. And so God chose Paul to address those things. And I love that, because if you're going to address legalism, you need to do it from somebody who's been freed from legalism. That's the best way to handle it. If, if you're going to address someone who has a history of sinning, the best person very often is someone who's had a history of sinning. Think about Paul's life. What was he doing on the road to Damascus? He was heading to Syria to go kill Christians to round him up, to kill as many as he could, or to bring him back to Jerusalem to stand trial, ultimately to be killed. So if you want to take somebody whose life has been used for the wrong and use it for the right, I think one of the things you have is you have this practical attachment to people. You ever notice how you can sit down and talk to somebody who's maybe going through something that you've already been through and God's already delivered you? It's a wonderful way for you to minister personally. And so God chooses Paul to do that for this particular messed up church. Chosen instrument of God, called by the Lord. Verse 2, it goes on to say, to the church of God at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So he's writing to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those are Christians. Family of God, can I remind you that to debate theology with people who don't know Jesus is kind of fruitless? What people who don't know Jesus need is not a theological lesson or treatise. 
what they need is for you to share the gospel with them. They need to know about Jesus before you can tell them about theology. The church sometimes tries to impose upon the world Christian values. That won't work. It has to change from the inside. Should we vote for Christian leaders? Absolutely. Should we enact Christian laws? Absolutely. But that won't save people. It only provides an environment that is more conducive to the sharing of the gospel. Till somebody's saved, they aren't going to have a clue what being sanctified is all about. To someone who is unsaved, they aren't going to understand why it's not okay for them to live with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're not going to understand why it's a wrong thing to go party with your friends. They aren't going to get it, and we're going to see that here in this letter. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The carnal mind cannot know them. And so he says to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, together with those who are in every place, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. And so Paul, here in this city that has the temple of Aphrodite and the temple of Apollo. And basically, they were like, in a vernacular, they were like a guy's club and a lady's club. And they were filled with sin. And he's saying, you know what? The answer is, let's get them saved. And then we can deal with the sin. Let's make sure that they know what it is that's the real problem, which is the reason they're going to those silly temples in the first place is because they've got a problem inside their heart. Sinners sin. People are looking for answers. And they do all kinds of really silly, dumb things to try and fill that void that is there, designed, I believe, by God, so that we'll reach out, so that we'll be looking for Him. And so Paul is sent to a city to minister these truths. The people there were needing God's instruction. Uh, They were in a very pluralistic society that denied absolutes. Uh, They claimed personal rights. Does it sound like any world that you live in? Pretty much the same deal, isn't it? They, They had a very, very, very strong view of an ancient philosophy of mind and might and money. Uh, That was the Greek mind. Sound like any society you know? Pretty much the same, isn't it? And they had a real tough time believing that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Same things exist today. And I pray as we journey through this letter together that the Lord will speak to us just as he did to them. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we now look forward to this journey through these two letters, and we pray that you would just continue to speak to us through the power of your word. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that, God, you really care about the details of our lives. And God, as we think on your word and take it into our hearts, we realize just how amazingly gracious you are, and at the same time, how high the standard is. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd have that balance, that we'd understand fully uh, the depths of your love. But, Lord, you'd speak to us daily. Lord, continue to use us for your glory, first to see men come to you, Jesus, as their Lord and as their Savior, 
And then, Lord, to renew and refresh our minds through the hearing of your word. Lord, through that journey of life wherein your spirit works in us. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Just stand. Let's worship the Lord.